Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQED in Frisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal with a special holiday edition of Forum. Happy Christmas Eve to those who celebrate. Hope you're safe and with people who love you. This beautiful Bay Area of ours contains stories and secrets, histories and futures. And if you know where to look and what questions to ask, you'll find them. Imbibe enough of those and that's how you become a person of this place. That can be hard work, or you can listen to the KQED podcast, Bay Curious, and that's what we'll be doing for the next hour with brilliant host Olivia Allen Price, Bay Curious episodes about Frida Kahlo saying Frisco, dialing popcorn for the time, and more. That's all coming up next, after this news. KQED in Frisco. I'm Alexis Madrigal. So today, in a very special pre-recorded holiday edition of Forum, I'm here with Olivia Allen Price. She's the host and editor of KQED's Bay Curious, and she's going to play us some favorite stories from her excellent podcast. Thanks for joining us, Olivia. Thank you, Alexis. So first, I love Bay Curious. I listen to it all the time. But for non-super fans, tell us a little bit about how Bay Curious works. Well, we are a podcast produced here at KQED, and the way that we work is people send in questions about the Bay Area. They really run the gamut. Anything that might come into your mind that has to do with this place we call home, and our job is to answer them, hopefully in a fun and delightful way, in a weekly podcast that comes out every Thursday. They're so satisfying. Olivia, one thing you do really beautifully on the show is to get at these kind of really specific points on this earth that are here in the Bay Area and telling stories from there. So, like, what makes a good Bay Curious that's kind of pinned really specifically on the map? Well, I love the stories that kind of, you know, they almost like open a door into an entire world in the Bay Area that's all based on, you know, something that's there geographically. So an example would be Tepco Beach over in the East Bay. I don't know if you've been there, but Mm -hmm. it's this beach that is riddled with broken pottery shards from this old ceramics factory, Tepco, that was out there. And they would oftentimes, you know, this is back in the day before we have environmental standards like we have now, they they would dump a lot of their, you know, broken or imperfect plates into the bay. And those have since washed up on a beach. So this episode kind of let us look at manufacturing in the Bay Area sort of on a larger scale and kind of what happened over the years. So let's set up the very first piece that we're going to hear here. Yeah. So a lot of our episodes look at the history of the Bay Area. And here's one that's been a favorite of mine. It's a throwback memory that some listeners might remember. For decades, there was a phone service here in Northern California that would read you the time if you called. 
Now, like the you num- just call in and there'd be like the time? Yes. You call okay. in and an automated voice would tell you the time. The number was 767-2676. And at some point, someone pieced together that that number spelled the word popcorn on a touchtone <laughs> phone. So you, people would say, oh, I'm calling popcorn to, to get the time. Now, this automated message would play... But it went away in 2007. People were kind of bummed about it. We had reporter Christopher Beale look at this Dial the Time service. All right. So this is what we're going to hear. We're going to hear one of the episodes of Bay Curious on this fascinating little squiggle of Bay Area history. Here we go. Afternoon. Pacific Daylight Time will be. Telephone service began in this country in 1878. That's Peter Amstein. I am the president of the board of directors of the Telecommunications History Group. In the years following Alexander Graham Bell's invention, phone service starts to spread across the country, and those earliest phones were connected by operators. If you wanted to make a call, you would pick up a handset and talk to a human who would manually connect you. This is information. May I help you? Yes, I'd like the new number of Wilson's Meat Market, 1191 Sycamore Street, please. One moment, please. The phone company wanted to be friendly and helpful, and certainly if the operators weren't too busy and had time, they would answer all sorts of questions for people, including about what the weather was. And the current time. In those days, unless you had a good wristwatch or a clock that you actually remembered to wind, you may not have had completely accurate time on you like we do today. That's where the operator came in. Starting in 1870 already, Western Union, who was the telegraph company, offered a nationwide highly accurate time service where they would install a clock in your business that was controlled centrally by their master clock in New York City and represented super accurate time for the day. You might find this type of clock in a railroad station, and the phone company would have had one as well. So this wasn't an official service, but if you called the operator and said, hey, what time you got? She would tell you. And that was pretty much the norm until 1918, when our planet's last great pandemic made its way through the population. The Spanish flu killed hundreds of thousands of Americans. The country was at war with an invisible force, and communication was a really important weapon. Those early operators became, you might say, essential workers. The phone company started putting notices in the newspapers telling people the operators would no longer answer questions like what time it was because they needed them to concentrate fully on connecting people's phone calls. By the time the Spanish flu ran its course in the early 20s, some cities were experimenting with a semi-automated live time of day service. And this was a doozy. To get the time, you would dial a number and be added to a very brief queue. This machine would play a beep every seven and a half seconds. You would hear the beep and be connected along with all the other callers in the queue. And then a human being, always a woman, would be sitting at a desk looking at a clock and reading out the time live and then waiting for the beep and then reading it out live again. Can you imagine this being your job? At the tone, it will be 9.55 and 45 seconds. At the tone, it will be 9.56 and I'm already bored. In addition to being boring, this just wasn't a feasible long-term answer to the need for time. 
the world was changing rapidly and a completely automated solution was needed. The good news is the phone company already had some useful technology just laying around. Sorry, your call cannot be completed as dialed. Called a drum recorder, these machines were used to play back repetitive messages on the phone, like... If you'd like to make a call, please hang up and try again. I mean, we're talking about early tape deck technology, but that tech inspired a man named John Franklin. Who was the proprietor of something called TikTok Ginger Ale. To create his own ad-supported time-and-date phone service, the first of its kind. He used one of the phone company's drum recorders and modified it so that it would always announce the current time. John Franklin's invention would help him found the Audicron Company in the 1930s. And the technology that they created was installed in cities big and small across the country. Audicron would hire actresses to read the times and dates and even sponsors in some cases. More money comes your way when you save with First Federal Savings and Loan. And then that modified drum recorder technology would handle the playback. In each region, the time service would have its own dedicated line, or in the case of Northern California and Popcorn, 30,000 dedicated lines. More on that in a second. The announcer in Northern California's recordings, lovingly referred to as the Time Lady, from the 1960s to the very end was Miss Joanne Daniels. Good afternoon. At the tone, Pacific Daylight Time will be... I think this is so cool. As the Time Lady, Joanne had a sort of a general American accent, but in real life, she has a Southern accent that she can turn on and off. Since we're having a friendly conversation, I'm just being myself. <laughs> Joanne talked to Steve Rubenstein of the San Francisco Chronicle from her home in Atlanta in August of 2007. AT&T has announced here in Northern California that it is canceling the time service recording as of September 19th, which is more or less the end of an era. And uh, Miss Daniels, is this a distressing day out here in California? Is it distressing for you in Atlanta to hear this? It certainly is distressing. I feel like I'm fading away. There are likely two main reasons why popcorn was abandoned. The first has to do with the way the number is dialed. You would start with your area code, 510 or 415, etc., and you'd dial 767. This was the pop in popcorn, and it worked all over Northern California. Any four digits that you dialed after 767 would get you the time of day service. And we're not talking about just one phone number in each area code here. We're talking about tens of thousands of phone numbers directed at popcorn. So that was a, a technical shortcut for them. By eliminating that shortcut and... Popcorn. They were able to get 30,000 new phone numbers. The other main reason popcorn and similar services across the country began to go away is the prevalence of new technologies, like our cell phones, which always have the correct time, but are also always listening to us in a not-at-all-creepy sort of way. Hey, I heard that. You can do multi-finger gestures on it. In 2007, Steve Jobs announced the first-ever iPhone. And boy, have we patented it. <laughs> so. And just three months later, time caught up with popcorn and AT&T pulled the plug. Joanne Daniels told the Chronicle that she thinks that's really sad. I think it's filled a need for a lot of people that aren't quite as modern <laughs> as the trend is going. Are there still any of these time of day services in operation today? 
Oh, sure, yes. For example, you can call the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. at 202-762-1401. And you can also call the National Institute of Standards and Technologies time of day number in Boulder, Colorado. There are also still a fair number of advertiser-sponsored local time of day numbers. Including, by the way, 415 popcorn in San Francisco. The time and temperature is coming up after this. Where today you'll find an ad. Are you prepared for emergencies in your home? The date. Today is Friday, November 27th. And the time of day. 3.54 p.m. What's the time, date, and temperature? Of course, these days your smart home or smartphone's digital assistant can give you the date, the time, the weather, and more. In San Francisco right now, it's 63 degrees. But we will never replace the popcorn. Time lady. She was the best. I'm going to miss being with you, and I would like to thank everyone in San Francisco for listening to me for all these many years. John Franklin's TikTok ginger ale would fade into obscurity, but Audicron is still around to this day, making computerized automated phone services under a different name. Apple did all right with their iPhone. And as of December 2020, Joanne Daniels is retired and living in Atlanta, Georgia. The time in San Francisco is time for me to say goodbye. That incredible voice, Joanne Daniels. Yes. I can't believe that there was an individual single person who like was doing that for all that. What a job. Yeah. I think you would have been great at that job, Alexis, actually. I think you could have done a you know, nice job. Let's, let's has... hear it. Can you audition? <laughs> <laughs> the time in San Francisco is 9, whatever it is, 918. Beautiful, morning. beautiful. <laughs> the, you you're much. hired. <laughs> We're listening to stories from KQED's Bay Curious with editor and host Olivia Allen Price. We just heard about popcorn. We'll have more after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal here with Olivia Allen Price, host and editor of the delightful and informative Bay Curious. We're listening to episodes of the podcast, which you can get from KQED, of course. So what's next for us, Olivia? Well, a listener wanted to know more about the time that famous Mexican artists Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera spent in San Francisco. So reporter Marisol Medina Cadena took us into their world for the story. (laughs) 
In the fall of 1930, newlyweds Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo set out on a long train ride, leaving their beloved Casa Azul in Mexico City to come to the United States. It was Frida's first time leaving her homeland, but she'd been dreaming of this moment for years. So Frida had had this reoccurring dream of leaving her you know, homeland and, and coming to what she called the city of the world, referring to San Francisco. And on their journey, Frida draws a self-portrait with skyscrapers and a body of water behind her. When they get to San Francisco, she shows it to Diego and he just marvels at how much it looks like what they're seeing before them. And, you know, kind of like she already knew what it was going to look like, even though she'd never been there. And so there's a sense of almost this destiny, right, of that she was supposed to come here. That's art historian and USF professor Celia Starr. She wrote a whole book on Frida's years in the United States called Frida in America, The Creative Awakening of a Great Artist. Part of her research is based on letters that 23-year-old Frida wrote to her family from San Francisco, like this one. Este embarcadero es muy cerca de la casa de nosotros. Hay puros pescadores italianos y es muy interesante. Los domingos va mucha gente a pescar y del lado de la bahía salen muchas focas, pero está prohibido matarlas. The wharf is close to our home. There are only Italian fishermen and it's very interesting. On Sundays, a lot of people go fishing and on the bayside, many seals come out, but killing them is forbidden. So what brought the couple to the United States during the Great Depression? Diego Rivera came to San Francisco to paint two murals. He was commissioned to do one at the San Francisco Art Institute and another at the Pacific Stock Exchange building. That's a private club today called the City Club of San Francisco. His patrons hoped that Diego's fame would bring prestige to the San Francisco art scene and help jumpstart a mural movement in the Bay. There were many artists in the 1930s who believed very strongly in this mural movement, which was really started in Mexico, and they wanted to see it flourish in the United States as well. It's an art for the people. But things got off to a complicated start. For one, job opportunities for artists were hard to come by in the Great Depression. So there was major pushback. Many of the local artists in San Francisco were resentful because they wanted work as well. And so there was a lot of discussion in the papers and amongst the, the artists in the community in San Francisco about why should he get this mural commission. Diego was an outspoken communist and often expressed his politics in his murals. Debemos y podemos asegurar que el arte es un lenguaje humano, es un medio de expresión y es, en general, propiedad that's Diego talking about how art is a universal language. It belongs to everyone, but capitalism prevents people from developing this inherent creativity. Some Bay Area artists took to the local press to declare their outrage about Diego painting inside a capitalist institution. One of those critics was painter Maynard Dixon. I believe he is the greatest living artist in the world, and we would do well to have an example of his work in a public building in San Francisco. But he is not the man for the Stock Exchange building. Diego's friends and comrades in Mexico were upset, too. They felt he was selling out by painting murals for the wealthy 
in the United States. But Diego didn't shy away from controversy. He embraced it. And soon, his critics in San Francisco embraced him. His use of the fresco technique, applying earth pigments on fresh wet plaster like the Renaissance painters, fascinated local artists. They flocked to Diego to learn the craft. He was treated like a celebrity here. Frida wrote about the nonstop attention Diego was getting. Al pobrecito no lo dejan ni ir al excusado a gusto, pues lo friegan todo el día. The poor guy can't even go to the bathroom in peace because they're bugging him all day. Frida, on the other hand, wasn't getting the same kind of praise for her art. She was seen as the famous muralist's wife. But she was determined to change that. When she first comes, and she's really this budding artist, you know, she hasn't had that much experience yet. She hasn't really found her artistic voice quite yet. Frida's early work referenced European art traditions like the Art Deco movement and the Italian Renaissance. Her paintings showed people with elongated necks and hands in front of dark, subdued backgrounds. Not the emotionally charged self-portraits with Mesoamerican symbolism and intricate plant life that she's known for today. But in her and Diego's new home between North Beach and Chinatown, Frida was surrounded by artists who energized her creative process. I think she really appreciated the setup of where she was living at that time on Montgomery Street because she had artists all around her and that they could go out to these restaurants around them and hang out with all the different artists. Aquí en San Francisco, el Año Nuevo, todos se ponen una borrachera padre, a pesar de la provisión. Esto es lo más esencial e importante. Here in San Francisco for the New Year, everybody gets drunk in spite of prohibition, which is so essential and important. In this bohemian environment, Diego and Frida rub shoulders with prominent writers, sculptors, and photographers, including Dorothea Lange. They bonded over their shared experience of having polio as children. These friendships with women were incredibly important for Frida as a person, but also as an artist. Some days, Frida would make art with other women who lived in the building, including Lucille Blanche and Pella Delap. Here's Pella in an interview with writer and historian Chris Carlson. Lucille and Frida and I would get together and draw these composite drawings where each one would start on a particular sheet of paper and then trade them off, pass them around, and which was usually quite either very obscene or horrendous and bloody or sensuous in some way. Art historian Celia Starr says these hangouts were key for Frida's development. They were doing these, you might say, taboo subjects, especially for women artists. And I think this definitely helped Frida to find her own voice as an artist. These sessions where they could get together and just explore with abandonment. When Diego and Frida weren't busy painting, they made plenty of time sightseeing other San Francisco neighborhoods. En la colonia Rusia andan vestidos como en Rusia y bailan en las colinas las muchachas. La colina griega también es muy interesante y la japonesa, pero sobre todo la china. In the Russian colony, they dress just like they do in Russia, and the girls dance on the hills. The Greek hill is also very interesting, and the Japanese, but especially the Chinese. She just gushes about Chinatown, and she writes about it quite a bit. 
it reminded her very much, uh, she said, of home. She talks about that she's convinced that the Mexican people and the Chinese people are connected to one another. Firecrackers during Chinese New Year festivities reminded her of street fairs back in Mexico. She was enamored with the shops of Chinatown and purchased silks and slippers to add to her wardrobe. And Frida's style was a hit here. Her indigenous dress, which was influenced by the Zapotec women of Tehuantepec, stirred so much excitement on the streets of San Francisco that she reportedly stopped traffic. A las gringas les he caído muy bien y les llaman la atención todos los vestidos y rebozos que traje. Se quedan con la boca abierta con los collares de Jade. The gringas like me very much and they admire all the dresses and shawls I brought. They are left speechless with the jade necklaces. Her bold look catches the attention of well-known photographers who ask her to pose for them. And since Frida was the daughter of a photographer, she was a natural in front of the camera. This recognition adds to Frida's growing artist persona and helped plant the seeds for her rise to icon status. The attention that she was getting for it, she relished in part because she was this proud Mexican woman and she wanted people to see her that way. But underneath her colorful garments, Frida's body ached. At 18, she suffered a horrific streetcar accident that severely damaged most of her body and exacerbated the chronic pain of her polio leg. So her long walks around San Francisco began to take a toll on her. That is, until she meets someone who would ultimately have a big impact on her life, Dr. Leo Eloesser. He was the chief of thoracic surgery at San Francisco General Hospital, and he went above and beyond to treat her foot and leg pain. But he was more than just her San Francisco doctor. Leo was a musician. He played viola, and he would have weekly soirees at his flat, and so... He was a doctor, but he could say he had the soul of an artist. He became both Frida and Diego's lifelong friend. And while they were here, the three of them traveled around the Bay Area. One time, Dr. Eloesser even took Frida on her first plane ride. They flew from Oakland to Sacramento to meet up with Diego, who was busy sketching mines and dredgers. These kinds of trips around Northern California helped Diego paint the region's landscapes and industries for his stock exchange mural. They get on this plane and they fly together to meet up with Diego. And she just talks about how incredible it was to be able to fly. And she just seems to be completely enthralled, you know, with this experience that she had. One of these trips was a major turning point for Frida's art. On a trip to Santa Rosa, she visited the garden of the famous horticulturist Luther Burbank. And here Burbank examines his giant artichokes. His genius improved size, yield, and quality of many vegetables, fruits, and flowers. For example, just compare... This guy was nicknamed the Wizard of Horticulture. He developed more than 800 varieties of fruits, vegetables, and plants by crossbreeding two kinds together. He did this when many scientists didn't think it was possible. Seeing how Burbank literally fused together two organisms to create something brand new totally mesmerized Frida. She decided to apply Burbank's hybrid technique to her art 
and what comes out of that is a portrait of Luther Burbank as part human and part tree trunk, with roots connecting to his buried corpse. This is a, really her first major breakthrough creatively in terms of creating a new style that was very different from what she'd been working on. From this point on, Frida continued to play with imagery of roots, plants, and hybrid bodies to get at larger themes of life and death. A duality that was already part of her Mexican upbringing. But Celia Starr says this style was honed here in the Bay Area. When Diego completes his two mural commissions, the couple leave to paint in Detroit and New York City before returning to Mexico. But it wouldn't be the last time they visited San Francisco. Ten years go by, and Diego and Frida's relationship is in turmoil. They divorce. When they came back, they actually came back separately. So Diego came first. There were actually rather uh, dramatic circumstances. Diego fled to San Francisco to escape Mexican authorities who wanted to question him about the attempted assassination of his old friend, Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky. Frida wasn't so lucky. Months later, the police detained her for questioning, and the experience left her traumatized. She was in a terrible emotional state. Physically, she wasn't doing well. She complained of back and leg pain. So her doctors in Mexico said she just needed more surgeries. But her dear friend, Dr. Leo Wesser, didn't agree. He felt her emotional health needed tending to. So he prescribed her a better diet, less drinking, and reuniting with Diego in San Francisco. He played this important role in their marriage. He was really the go-between with their relationship. When Frida arrives in the Bay, Diego is working around the clock at the World's Fair on Treasure Island. He was painting the Pan-American Unity mural in front of a public audience. For the first time, you can see artists backstage, painters, sculptors, potters, and weavers revealing the secrets of their craft. Once again, Diego's art would spark controversy, not because he painted his communist politics, but because he portrayed the cruelty of Nazi Germany. It was his way of urging the U.S. to intervene in World War II to protect all of the Americas, including Mexico. Meanwhile, Frida spent a month hospitalized at St. Luke's in the Mission District. Once she got out and felt much better, she and Diego get remarried at San Francisco City Hall. The Oakland Tribune snaps a photograph of the couple and this time acknowledges Frida as, quote, an artist in her own right. By 1940, she has achieved quite a bit. Really, you might say she's at the height of her career at that time. Her art was exhibited at the World's Fair on Treasure Island and the Legion of Honor, and landed in the hands of important collectors that gave her wider exposure around the US. Now, it's important to understand that as much as the Bay Area gave Frida and Diego a platform to create and thrive, the couple also gave the region a lasting blueprint for creativity. In fact, Coit Tower and the murals there emerge because of Diego's influence. Some of the Coit Tower muralists actually trained under Diego. They followed in his footsteps, painting large-scale fresco murals that focus on workers and class issues. Frida's body of work 
also had a direct impact on Bay Area artists starting in the 1970s, when many Chicanos and Latinos continued the fight for civil rights and representation, artists like Amalia Mesa Baines turned to Frida and Diego's art as a source of empowerment and cultural pride. We had experienced racism and discrimination, and so we needed to reclaim our sense of belonging. So Frida and Diego became, in many ways, models for us that, uh, that an artist could be at the same time political and cultural. Amalia and other local artists were so moved by Frida's art that they curated an art exhibit called Homage to Kahlo at the Galleria de la Raza in 1978. This was when there was very little published about Frida's life and work. So this show was truly seminal in introducing Frida to the American public before Frida mania ensued. Today, local artists continue to pay tribute to Frida and Diego. Frida's face has adorned murals in the Mission District, and the vibrant colors and social realist imagery of street art in the Bay harken back to Diego's masterpieces. San Francisco city officials even renamed a street after Frida Kahlo in front of City College's main campus. That's also the permanent home of Diego Rivera's Pan American Unity mural. In what Frida called the city of the world, the lasting brushstrokes of Mexico's most known artist are as vibrant as ever. That was reporter Marisol Medina Cadena. We've been listening back on our favorite Bay Curious episodes with host Olivia Allen Price. This is a special holiday edition of Forum. We'll have more after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. (music) 
You've been listening to a special holiday edition of Forum coming up at 10 a.m. with Mina Kim. Have you ever felt slip fast or longing to melt into a crowd and become invisible? Or maybe scabulous, proud of a certain scar on your body? John Koenig finds the gaps that exist in the language of emotion and tries to fill them. He's put those words into a book called The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, and we'll listen back on Mina's interview with him. For the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're trying out all kinds of new stuff on social media. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal here with Olivia Allen Price, host and editor of KQED's Bay Curious. And we are playing the hits here, some of Bay Curious's best episodes. Tell us about the specific episode that we're going to hear uh, right now. So this episode, it's really based on a commonly shared bit of trivia that's been going around for decades. And it's pretty widely spread. I, I talked to a lot of people who had heard this. The rumor goes that the spot on Earth from which you can see the most land, so like not just ocean, but land, is the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. But the summit of Mount Diablo here in the Bay Area is number two on that list. So we thought, that's an intriguing proposition. That's a pretty remarkable accolade, if, if that is true. So we sent reporter Asal Asanapur to look into it. Oh, man. Wait, before we listen to it, can yeah. I tell you why I love Mount Diablo? Oh, please. Because it is such an isolated peak in the way that you're talking about, I like imagining every time I'm like running up it, I'm like any any human being for the last 10,000 years that has been past that area would know Mount Diablo. Mm-hmm. Like it is just a place that you know that every indigenous person that ever lived here would have been like, oh, yeah, Mount Diablo, that that. That spot, you yeah, know? and I just—it feels like it connects me to like the history of the indigenous people here and kind of all the history of the human history of the bay. Indeed, I also love that you can see it from so far away. It's always my sign that we're we're getting closer to home if we are like traveling back from the mountains. That's awesome. All right, let's do some myth busting about Mount Diablo. We're going to listen in on this episode. The mystery of the view from Mount Diablo is a romantic one, steeped in local legend. To find out if it's true, I drove to the source itself. In 600 feet, you will arrive at your destination. From the base of the mountain, it takes me about an hour to get to the top. Wow, that took so long. Mount Diablo sits on the eastern edge of the Bay Area in Contra Costa County, but you can see its double peak pyramid from most spots around the bay. At 3,849 feet, the mountain's view is second to none. Well, it's second to one, maybe. We'll find out. So the view when you come up here is really amazing. How it compares to Kilimanjaro is up for debate, but I'm kind of partial to the view here from Mount Diablo, and I think most people that come are pretty amazed by what the view looks like. My tour guide today is Sharon Peterson, Mount Diablo State Park's interpreter, which she says means her job is to tell the story of the park. Sharon takes me to the summit's viewing deck. She says that on a clear day, you can see 40 of California's 58 counties from here. As little as 1% of some of those counties, but still. This is where we walk out into the wind. (laughs) First, she points west. 
So you can see the Golden Gate Bridge today. You could see both towers with the naked eye. And if I give you the binoculars, you can probably see it for sure. She whips them out and there it is, the Golden Gate Bridge 60 miles away. Two towers peeking over Round Top in the Berkeley Hills. Wow, that's really, really cool. Then we turn north and you can see the Sacramento and San Joaquin rivers forming the Delta. South, it's a sweeping view of the Diablo Range in Livermore Pleasanton. And finally, east, where through the haze, we catch a glimpse of the snow-speckled Sierra rising above the Central Valley over 100 miles away. And I heard that you can also see Yosemite from here. On a clear day, you can, and with binoculars, you can see Sentinel Dome. There is a rumor that you can see Half Dome, but it's actually blocked by one of the land features in between. Seeing it for myself, the sight is so magnificent, so magical that it feels like I'm looking down at a watercolor. The only thing that compares is the view from a plane. Maybe it's possible the myth is true. It's absolutely not true that Mount Diablo has the largest view in the world, except for Mount Kilimanjaro. Seth Adams is the land conservation director at Save Mount Diablo, and he's spent a lot of time myth-busting the Kilimanjaro claim. I never quite believed it. It just didn't have the ring of truth to me because it's a small mountain, and uh, common sense would tell you the taller the mountain, the bigger the view. But considering the myth has been repeated hundreds of times, he says it makes sense people would believe it. Seth traced the infatuation with Diablo back to the 1850s and 60s, when scientists like Josiah Whitney first geologically surveyed the mountain. That's Josiah Whitney of Mount Whitney, the tallest mountain in the Sierra Nevada. Josiah Whitney wrote, It is believed that there are few, if any, points on the Earth's surface from which so an ex extensive an area may be seen as from Mount Diablo. The whole area thus spread out can hardly be less than 40,000 square miles. The legend snowballed from there, repeated over and over for decades through the end of World War II, a time when people really started experiencing parks and mountains recreationally, and Mount Diablo became a go-to tourist spot. The Kilimanjaro claims circulated in travel guides and hiking maps by railroad companies and auto associations. Even Contra Costa County described it as, quote, the world's greatest view, more territory visible than from any point in the world. But as visitors flocked to Diablo for the views, entrepreneurs saw a chance to make a buck. More than half of Mount Diablo was locked up successively by two big real estate land speculators. Both of them printed brochures by the thousands that included the claim of Mount Diablo having the largest view in the world. Boasting that claim was a smart business move for one developer. In 1917, he had a dream of building thousands of homes on Diablo's western flank, and those amazing views helped push his agenda forward. Eventually, the developer went bankrupt and the deal flopped. But it was too late. The brochures had done their work. Oh, you can definitely credit the brochures for spreading the misinformation, but it's, it's just too good a claim. The largest view in the world, right? And understand that California was a promoter's dream. Which brings us to another promoter, the entrepreneur Walter P. Frick, who hired a publicist to help him spread the rumor the Mount Diablo had the greatest view on Earth, especially as he built an eight-foot beacon tower known as the Eye of Diablo. But Frick was working with engineers from the Standard Oil Company, and they were skeptical. Someone, for the first time, said, 
come on. Uh, biggest view in the entire world. So after that, the 1928 Standard Oil Bulletin added a footnote to their brochure. Except for a point in Africa, clearly being Mount Kilimanjaro. From there, the legend shifted from Mount Diablo having the largest view in the world to the second largest. It went on like this until 1994, when it was officially debunked by an engineer slash mountaineer who did the math. His name was Edward Earle, but he went by the nickname 7.38905609. Math joke. He said, I don't believe this, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to define the problem, and I'm going to calculate view sheds for lots of other mountains and see how they compare. View shed is the area visible from a specific vantage point, including land or water. Now remember, Whitney speculated Diablo's viewshed was about 40,000 square miles. But according to Earl's calculations, it's actually between 13 and 21,000. That might still sound like a lot, but from other taller mountains, you can see more than three times as much. And even for a total non-mathematician like me, it kind of makes sense. Mount Kilimanjaro is five times the size of Mount Diablo, so Diablo couldn't possibly have a comparable viewshed, even if it is an isolated peak. He conclusively showed that the Mount Diablo viewshed claim was bogus. <laughs> but it doesn't really matter because the, the claim had already done its work. Mount Diablo became famous, it became beloved. And as I said, Mount Diablo may not have the largest view in the world, but it certainly has the most extraordinary view in the world. And looking out from the summit, it is extraordinary. And luckily for us, extraordinary can't be measured with math. There are some controversial language things here in the Bay. Um, sometimes I call the San Francisco Bay Area the Bay, and uh, people get big mad, I know, because <laughs> you sent me emails. But that's not actually the most controversial language thing around a name in the Bay, right? No. It would definitely be Frisco, I think. Frisco. <laughs> I'm a Frisco fan, and we've got an episode talking about this, right? Yes. Uh, reporter Vinnie Tong looked into the debate around the word Frisco. So you want to know how annoyed people get by Frisco? Pretty annoyed. You know, I keep it as San Francisco. When people say, like, Frisco or anything, it just bothers me. For some reason, uh, Frisco is supposed to be not the right way to call it. I just never have liked the sound of it. It seems really truncated and kind of almost offensive. How about SF? Um, possibly. And Frisco? No. <laughs> no, no, no. Clearly, people take this really personally. But despite all that hate, there are a lot of people who love Frisco, like the owners of this tattoo shop in the Mission. It's called Frisco Tattoo. Okay, my name is Joey Wilson. He and his wife Lila own this place. I'm born and raised in San Francisco. Joey's the kind of guy you want on your side if a fight breaks out in a bar. He wears sunglasses indoors. He's got lots of tattoos. There's one on his wrist in fancy lettering that says Frisco. My parents always called it that. They were blue collar workers. Um, it was just something that was instilled in me as a kid. When I was a little kid, I think I was 12 or 13, there was a bike shop called Frisco Choppers and raced down there on the bus down Valencia Street just to buy a t-shirt that said Frisco in big bold letters because that was like the coolest 
Today, Joey's in the Hells Angels, the Frisco chapter. Joey's wife, Lila, says they have lots of friends who love Frisco as much as they do. A lot of our friends, Joey and I's friends, are kind of small business owners in the city here, actually, and really are owners of the name Frisco. We have Frisco Boxing, we have 415 Clothing, we have we had Frisco Choppers at years back, and just really the kind of um, root and background of that name and really um, took it far with t-shirts and tattoos and, you know, really just blew up that name. Sounds like Joy Wilson inherited this word from members of his family, and we actually heard from other people who associate this word with an earlier generation. Yeah, I think they're partly right. I met up with Charles Fracchia to see how far back this name goes. He's the founder of the San Francisco Historical Society. He says nobody knows for sure, but he does have a theory. How about a fellow who's been drinking too much and says, ah, oh, good to be back in San Francisco. You know, it's kind of a contraction. That makes more sense. Frakia thinks Frisco popped up in the late 1800s, maybe on some sheet music. Others think maybe during the gold rush. Frisco was probably in its heyday when the ports were strong here, around the time of the Second World War in the 1940s. Kind of a working man's period of time. The, the, the port was thriving. You had lots of small manufacturers here. It was kind of, and Frisco was kind of a, as I said, it was kind of a working man's word. The other thing to know, not long after people started using it, other people started hating it. They said only out-of-towners used it. Tourists, basically. San Francisco's self-proclaimed emperor, the Brit Joshua Abraham Norton, supposedly banned the use of Frisco in 1872 and said whoever used it would have to pay a $25 fine. But that's not been verified. One person we do know hated the word... Herb Cain. Ah, Herb Cain, the revered writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. When he wrote about the city, people listened. Herb Cain made San Francisco into almost a village. By the fact that his columns were very popular, there was a kind of a lingua franca about about them. Cain came along after the city had grown from a dinky West Coast outpost into a gold rush boomtown with saloons and debauchery and later into a city that looked more like the East Coast and European cities it wanted to imitate. He wanted San Francisco to be more classy, more chic. His book, Don't Call It Frisco, came out in 1953. Don't call it Frisco. It's San Francisco, because it was named after St. Francis of Assisi, and because Frisco is a nickname that reminds the city uncomfortably of the early, brawling, boisterous days of the Barbary Coast and the cribs and sailors who were shanghaied, and because Frisco shows disrespect for a city that is now big and proper and respectable, and because only tourists call it Frisco anyway, and you don't want to be taken for a tourist, do you? So that's, I think, what it became controversial, contentious. Frakia says Kane's book ruined the nickname. People wanted to seem proper and cultured, so they listened to Kane and shunned it. And now, people like Joey Wilson want to know why Kane's opinion should matter more than theirs. I mean, Kane was born in Sacramento. So that's the question. Why does it upset you to call it Frisco? Give us a reason. And who are you to tell us what we can and can't do? I'm, I'm from here. I'm born and raised here. So... I think I got rights to call it wherever I want. Working on this story one day, I grabbed a lift and got to talking with the driver, a guy named Lorenzo Beasley. I grew up on the bottom of the city in a small neighborhood called Visitation Valley. More of the, 
I guess you call it the urban community, like the like blacks or Hispanics in the city. And those type of people always grew up using that word. Lorenzo says you hear it in Visitation Valley, Hans Point, Lakeview, Fillmore, Potrero Hill, the Mission, especially the Mission. So it's strong there. It's really strong there. I asked him who doesn't like Frisco. It's like a higher class of people, I guess, like uh, people who stay like in Knob Hills and stuff. They look at it as like slang. It's definitely a, a bit of snob, the whole snob thing involved in it. For Lorenzo, whether or not you use Frisco says what neighborhood you're from. Now, when I met Lorenzo, I was on my way to the Bayview. I met a Stanford linguist, Teresa Pratt, at a restaurant known for its chicken wings. Yeah, I'll take that one, the 10 piece with the lemon chicken. Lemon pepper. Yeah, lemon pepper. Fries in a drink. We're at Frisco Fried. Uh, fr I believe it's fr mostly fried chicken. It looks like they have some fish on the menu uh, in the Bayview on 3rd Street. Pratt said when you want to talk about language and word choice, like nicknames, you're virtually always talking about money and power. Institutions that have power, people that have power have an, have an interest in maintaining that the way that they speak is the right way to speak, right? Because that helps them, because it cu it's coupled with this ideology that's really widespread that there is a, quote, right way to speak or a way of speaking that gets you ahead. Language has cultural capital, right? So um, it's something like knowing exactly where to put your forks at the end of a meal. Hmm. So the words we use are really markers to show other people where we fit in to society. And nicknames are even more like that. Knowing which one to use and which one not to use is kind of like telling people where you belong. Which gets us back to Rena, our question asker, who suddenly felt out of place because she was called out for using this word in the wrong way. For someone to correct you on that, it's kind of like, oh, I have it wrong this whole time. Well, Rena, we have some good news for you. That's right. Herb Kane, the arbiter of taste, eventually flip-flopped on Frisco a couple times in the 90s. We've built our anti-Frisco bias on some shaky ground. Now, Vinny, I have to ask you, after all this reporting, are you pro or anti-Frisco? Definitely pro-Frisco. It's punchy and kind of cute, totally endearing. And I've got Joey Wilson. I think I got rights to call it whatever I want. And even Tupac on my side. <laughs> Frisco, yeah. Frisco. Plus, is this city really a place for snobs? Thanks, Vinny. Anytime. Okay, Olivia, how about you? Frisco, yes or no? Frisco, yes. I do draw the line at San Fran, though. Ah, San Fran. Yeah, uh, I agree. It really SF, hurts. I'll take. Frisco, I'm pro. San Fran, gross. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. This has been a special holiday edition of Forum with Bay Curious. We've heard wonderful stories from across the Bay. Thank you so much for coming on, Olivia Allen Price. Thank you, Alexis. It was such a pleasure. And if you liked what you heard, go subscribe to the Bay Curious podcast. The 9 o'clock hour of Forum is produced by Tina Larberg, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, and Grace Wan, with help this week from Dan Zoll and Christopher Beal. Caroline Smith is our engagement producer, Judy Campbell's lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, and Chris Hopp. Our interns are Kimia Akbari and Jennifer Ng. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Happy holidays. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.